I want to invite you to find Luke chapter 9. If you've got a Bible with you or a Bible app on your phone, Luke chapter 9. Also have the words projected up in the front here. Um, all right, I'm going to see if I can remember how to preach today. And uh, we're all going to see if we remember what we're doing in the Gospel of Luke because we've been been out of the Gospel of Luke by necessity for a few weeks. Actually, following today, we're going to be out of the Gospel of Luke by necessity for another couple of weeks, but we will be back here eventually on October 16th, but we've got this one moment today where we're going to be back in, in Luke 9. We're going to make the most of it, okay? Now, if, if you're just joining us, just watching the live stream for the first time or in this room for the first time, um, it's okay because we all need a reintroduction to what's going on here in the Gospel of Luke, okay? So big picture, we're learning about this thing called the kingdom of God. All through the Gospel of Luke, we see this theme. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. What is that? What would you say to someone if they came up to you on the street and said, What is the kingdom of God? Very simply, the kingdom of God is the realm in which God is reigning. Very simple. Of of course it is. The kingdom of God is the realm in which God is reigning. Now, the thing to know is that the kingdom of God has past, present, and future manifestations on the earth. Past, present, future. In the past, okay? The kingdom of God was present on the earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Think about it. He is the realm in which God is reigning in his person when he walked the earth. He was the manifestation of the kingdom of God. God was reigning in him. In the present today, the Christian is the realm in which God is reigning. If you are trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and have given your life over to him, you have received the Holy Spirit. Belief in Jesus Christ is a a mark that the Holy Spirit is present. You, Christian, are the realm in which God is reigning. There's also a future manifestation of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God will be present on earth in all of its fullness, in all of its beauty when Christ returns. And God reigns fully, visibly, powerfully, in righteousness and peace over all of his creation, okay? So the kingdom of God has this already but not yet reality. And as for us, just trying to do the best we can right now, living in this world as those representatives of the kingdom of God, we come here, we gather every Sunday to learn a little bit more of what it looks like to live out that reality in front of the world. Not, that, not so that we can be put in God's museum of beautiful objects, but so that we can take the kingdom and bring the kingdom in beauty and in power to other people that they might also come into the kingdom of God by God's mercy and God's grace. So we've got another text in front of us today, another chance to learn something more about what the kingdom of God is like. And I just want to say, I feel like at this moment in history, this text is huge for us. 
the thing we're going to learn about life in the kingdom of God today from Luke 9, verses 28 through 43, is, um, I think is going to be really, really helpful. If you have ever lamented the presence of evil in this life right now, this text and this sermon is for you. And if you have ever lamented the failures of Jesus' disciples, if you've ever lamented the failures that you see in other Christians around you, if that has been bothersome to you and really, really troubling to you to see followers of Jesus not acting like followers of Jesus, this text in this sermon is for you. How do we deal with those things? Those things are huge. The presence of evil in this world and the presence of Christians not being Christians in practice, those things are huge. Those are driving people away in droves from God and from God's church. And what we're going to find today is the Christ-like way to deal with that. Because that's really hard. Okay? So that's what's ahead of us today. We're going to read verses 28 to 43. There's going to be two different scenes. One takes place on the mountain. One takes place in the valley. And there's a big difference between what's going on up here and what's going on down here. And the difference between those two places is going to show us the answer that we're looking for. Okay? All right. If you're able to stand, let's stand for the reading of the word. Something we do out of reverence for the word of God. So if you're able to do that, please join me in that as we read um, from the scriptures. This is uh, Luke 9, beginning in verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him, so that's Jesus. Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. So they're up on the mountain. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. And the two men who stood with him And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look um, at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, 
How long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Well, Father, we know these things are given for our instruction. And uh, I pray that in spite of whatever weight we may be um, feeling in our hearts today, or whatever may be weighing on our minds, uh, that you would accomplish your purposes here through the word. We know that you have promised that your word will not return void, but will achieve that purpose for which you have sent it out. And so that's what we ask for. We bring that promise back to you and ask that it would happen today for the the building up of our hearts in Christ. We ask in his lovely name. Amen. All right, please be seated. As you noticed, um, the mountain is the place where the wonderful and glorious things are happening. The valley is the place where the difficult, hard things are happening. Things that are undesirable. So let's talk about Let's talk about both of those scenes, but we're going to spend more time talking about the valley because that's where we live right now. That's our present reality. But before we do that, before we get to the valley, let's notice the glories of the peak. This is the first part, verses 28 to 36. What can we say about the mountaintop experience? What happens up there? Well, first of all, the the peak is the place where Christ is seen clearly. Peter and John and James are up there with Jesus at his invitation. And as is their habit, they're heavy with sleep. But we read in verse 32 that when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. The peak, therefore, is the place where Christ is seen clearly. They saw his glory. Now, Christ has always had glory, hasn't he? It's just, it just hasn't been apparent in his features to this point. To this point, he has simply looked like an, an ordinary man down below in the valley with no particular glory about his physical appearance. But here on the mountain, we see at verse 29 that the appearance of his face was altered and his clothes became dazzling white. The disciples have been with Jesus a long time, but in these moments, he appears differently to them. They see more clearly who he really is. The transfiguration, that's the, that's the big term to describe the scene on the mountaintop. When you see that in your Bible, the transfiguration, it's talking about how Christ's appearance changed. The transfiguration is God's answer to the question that Jesus posed in verse 20. Who do you say that I am? 
The transfiguration is God's answer to that question. On the mountaintop, it's revealed in both Jesus' appearance and in the words of the Father, who he is. This is my son, my chosen one. See, that's God's answer to the question. Don't you love the simple terminology? God the Father speaking. You want to know who this is? This is my son, my chosen one. What is obscured down below is revealed in exactness up top. They saw his glory, and the Father speaks in very simple terms. This is my son, my chosen one. The mountaintop, therefore, is the place where they see Jesus for who he really is. Now, that's an experience that we all long for. Our great problem, really, is that we have a a faulty vision of sin. We think sin is glorious when it's really garbage. And we have a faulty vision of Christ. We're not able, most of the time, the vast majority of the time, hardly ever, maybe never, to see him for who he really is. I, I long for that. that. That's a wonderful prayer by way of application today. Simply to take this home and this week just pray, Father, show me who your son really is. Capture my heart with the true reality of who your son really is. Show me his glory. That's the prayer of Moses from Exodus 33. On the mountaintop, show me your glory. I think God will answer that prayer for you. I don't think there's any prayer that God loves to hear from us more than that one. Father, would you please show me the glory of your son? God the Father here shines a spotlight on his son on the mountaintop. Did you know that's the same ministry that the Holy Spirit has, to to shine a spotlight on Jesus Christ? Did you, by the way, know that that's the same ministry that you have? in your life to shine a spotlight on Jesus Christ? Do you remember that was John the Baptist's ministry to shine a spotlight on Jesus Christ and get out of the way? That's all I'm here for. That's all you're here for. And it begins just with a simple prayer. God, show me, show me the true glory of your son. Show me him more clearly than I've seen him before. First of all, the peak is the place where Christ is seen clearly. We'll, we'll hit the next two pretty quickly. Okay, so two more things that happen on the peak pretty quickly. The, the peak is the place where Christ is honored. That also happens up here on the mountaintop. We see that in verse 30 where uh, Moses and Elijah are present. Think about it. The, um, the religious leaders of Israel that are not honoring Jesus, they really revere these guys, Moses and Elijah. 
especially Moses. And the ones that they revere are honoring Jesus on the mountaintop. Christ is not honored down below by them, by the supposed leaders, but the ones that they revere, they are there honoring Jesus by their presence and by their conversation. And not only that, Christ is honored with the words of the Father that we've already spoken about, verses 34 and 35. So we see this great honoring of the person of Christ. What is not happening down below is happening up top. The peak is the place where Christ is honored. And so naturally we have this third thing. Very simply, the peak is the place where we want to stay. Peak is the place where Christ is seen clearly. The, the peak is the place where Christ is honored. So naturally, the peak is the place that we want to stay. That we don't want to leave that place. That's what we see in verse 33 with Peter's infamous suggestion that they all stay for a while. It's good that we are here. Let's make three tents. And you know, if you've been in church for more than six years, Peter gets a horrible rap for making this suggestion. And Luke does add the comment. He doesn't know what he was saying, okay? But sometimes we don't know what we're saying, but what we're saying is still true. That was a good suggestion by Peter. It's a noble desire to want to stay there in this place where Christ's glory is seen and where Christ is being honored. His impulse was right, even if his suggestion wasn't practical and wasn't the plan. Because we know, as far as the Christian experience goes, these times when, when we see Christ more clearly and when we come to a place where Christ is honored, isn't it just the desire of our heart to just stay in this warm cocoon of Christian fellowship where everyone is honoring Christ? And the, the time of, of prayer is sweet and the, the music is wonderful and our hearts are set on Christ and we're not dealing with all that stuff out there. I'm pretty sure that the, the term quiet, quiet time is passing out of common usage. As a matter of fact, just this weekend, I saw a tweet disparaging the use of the term quiet time, okay? So don't let that term bother you, even if you don't like the phrase quiet time. The, the idea of it and the purpose of it is still something that we would agree is good and should be sought after. A time to pull away and get on your own, whether you're being quiet or not, it could be really loud, because you're so excited. But to be with Jesus Christ through the scriptures and express your dependence on God in prayer. It's really, really good. And, and we need that. That is the, the nourishment of the Christian life. But the temptation, both individually and corporately, is to make that the sum total of the Christian life, where we feel like, if I've had my quiet time today, or if I've gone to church this weekend, I've, I've done it all. Like, that's the Christian experience. That's part of the Christian experience. That's not the totality of the Christian experience. 
the temptation is always toward retirement and being cloistered away and just being us. The temptation to remain aloof, like on the mountain and experience all the glory and have sweet times with Jesus, but not enter into any difficulty or any messiness or any suffering. We have to remember that the vision of glory is a gift. And those sweet times you spend with the Lord are a gift. But as Oswald Chambers likes to remind us, we are not made for the mountain. We are made for the valley. And the descent to the valley is inevitable. But the vision we receive on the mountaintop is meant to sustain us in the valley where things are hard. So let's talk about the valley. We see in verse 37 these words that on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain. Okay, so they've had the mountaintop experience. Now they're coming down. The peak was a place of glory, a place they wanted to stay. The valley is a place of difficulty. It's the place where they lived. It's the place where we live. We may have these sweet mountaintop experiences with the Lord, but we live in the valley where there's difficulty. What difficulties meet them in the valley? Well, there are two First of all, there is the presence of evil. There's a boy who's not well. He's suffering from the presence of a demon. That's what we find out. Verse 42, the demon is mentioned. Satan's powerful, violent, destructive presence is evident in the valley. And this is the case today for sure. The kingdom of God is not present on earth in all of its fullness today. It's present in you, Christian. But it has not come in its fullness. Satan has been defeated at the cross, but he is still active in the world. And there is evil, powerful and violent and destructive evil in this valley that we live in. And just as the evil immediately meets Jesus and the disciples when they, when they come down, just meets them right away, the very next day, same thing with us. As soon as we close our Bible, as soon as we get out of bed, as soon as we open up our mind to the outside world, the, the presence of evil is immediately apparent. Getting caught up on the news. There it is. Presence of evil. Talking to a friend about what's going on in their life and the the suffering and the hardship and the, the breakup of their family or whatever is happening or someone's dying from a disease. There it is. That's reality number one in the valley is the presence of evil. It's present in the text. It's present in our lives. Reality number two, or we could say difficulty number two, is the failures of disciples. This is verse 40. The man with the suffering son says that he begged Jesus' disciples to cast out the demon, but they could not. 
Now, at first glance, it may seem like this was not a failure on their part. Maybe, um, maybe they just weren't good enough or strong enough. Maybe they weren't experienced enough. But look back at verse 1, chapter, same chapter, chapter 9. Look back at verse 1 and be reminded. Remember what had happened back at verse 1. He called the 12 together. He gave them power and authority over all demons. And he sent them out. They had already been granted power over all demons. But they weren't able to cast out this demon. Okay, now, I have a theory about this event. And I think it's supported pretty well by the scriptures and by our, by our own experience. So I'll share it with you and you can decide what you think. There's a detail about this event that Mark includes in, in his account, in the Gospel of Mark, that Luke does not include. Mark tells us that after this event happened, the disciples not being able to cast out this particular demon for this particular man, Mark tells us that there was kind of a debrief that happened with Jesus afterwards. The disciples were asking him questions about what had happened. And they said, why, why were we not able to cast it out? And Jesus told them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. What does that mean? Well, one thing it means is that the disciples tried to do this great work without prayer. And doing something without prayer means doing something without dependence on God. And doing something without dependence on God means you're trying to do something in your own strength. And when we try to do something in our own strength, usually we're trying to prove something. And I can't prove to you this is true, but I just wonder if those nine disciples that got left, think about it, nine of you got left at the base of the mountain and three got to go up. Think about the privilege of the three and think about the feelings of the nine, what they might have been feeling. I just wonder if the nine at the base of the mountain, when they had this great opportunity to do this great thing for this powerful demon, had these feelings well up inside of them of, you know, we're going to show those guys when they come down from the mountain, we've been doing real ministry down here. We're going to tell them what we were able to do while they were up there. I think there would have been such a great temptation to rely on their own strength and what they already knew they could do from their previous experience at the beginning of chapter 9. And the result in them failing to cast out the demon was just because of this fleshly ministry of striving for prominence. Now, like I said, I can't prove that that's true, but I think it's pretty well supported by, for one reason, because almost the very next thing that we read, verse 46, an argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest. I mean, the, the rivalry dynamic is already there, and they're already arguing about who's the greatest in this group. Okay, and it's not just them. The other reason I think this is true is just by looking inside myself. 
And you looking inside of yourselves, knowing that we still do this kind of stuff, striving for prominence among ourselves. Look what I can do. And failing to be dependent on God. Ministry out of the flesh. And we strive for prominence among each other, and we envy, and we argue, and we do not always represent Christ well. One of the difficulties in the valley, both for Jesus and for us, is disciples failing to be who they should be. Humble, dependent, faithful disciples. Now let me ask you a question. Do you experience these same two difficulties in the valley? Are you troubled by the presence of evil here? And are you troubled by the failures of fellow disciples to be who they should be? Those might be the two biggest problems that people have with Christ and with Christianity and with his church, those just might be the two biggest ones. How can this all be true with all this evil around us and all of these so-called disciples of Jesus acting like this? What about you? Are you thinking of walking away from the church, from Christ, from, from God, from worship, from reading the scriptures, from all of this because of the presence of evil and the failures of disciples in this valley? I think noticing Jesus' response is going to be really helpful. I think we all struggle with these two issues in the valley. They are sad. They are tragic. They are incredibly disappointing and disillusioning. And they may make us want to separate ourselves from God and his church. But what does Jesus do? What will Jesus do? He walks straight into these realities, the presence of evil and the failures of his disciples. He walks straight into it, and what does he do? He sighs. not written here that he sighs, but what we have in front of us is a kind of verbal sigh. How long am I to be with you and bear with you? That's a kind of verbal sigh. I'm calling it the sanctified sigh or the holy sigh. 
And I'll tell you what I, what I mean by that, calling it the, the sanctified sigh. You know, at first reading, if you're like me, we almost wonder, is it okay for Jesus to say this? In, in fact, I'll be, I'll be really, really candid with you. And I really hope this is not blasphemous because it's not my intent at all. I'm just trying to get into the mind of Christ. When I read that, I almost wonder, is this comment beneath him? to express this kind of exasperation with people and to wonder, in effect, how long do I have to put up with this? But if our minds go there, immediately we know, yes, yes, this comment is worthy of him. He's showing us the appropriate response to these realities. It's the Christ-like response. Of course it is, because this is Christ. This is the Christ-like response to those two realities that we're struggling with. We admit that this generation that we live in is faithless and twisted. It's faithless, and the word could be translated perverted, crooked. Things are not as they should be. People are not who they should be. Followers of Christ are not who they should be. Surprising, horrible failures are here among disciples of Jesus, among people who should know better. But none of that changes who Jesus is. He's not caught off guard. He doesn't do anything rash. He sighs and he longs for the full manifestation of his kingdom. How long, he asks. That is a longing for the next era, for the the era to come when his kingdom will be present in all of its fullness where there is is no presence of evil at all. And his disciples are not failures, are not failing anymore. Because we will have been freed from the presence of sin. So, Christian, do not expect that in this world right now. This is a place of sighing. This is a place of sighing and longing for what is to come. The full glory of Jesus that we've experienced on the peak a few times, only at brief intervals. This is a place of sighing and and longing for when that will be the reality. I'm just telling you this morning, it's okay to sigh. It's okay to call this a faithless and twisted generation and long for the next era. So instead of leaving and walking away from Christ and his church, we can stay with him and respond in the same way. A really deep sigh and a really great longing. And the very last thing is just this one more question that you might have, like, 
especially if you don't believe in Christ. Like, is this all God can do? Like, shows up and looks at the world and just throws up his hands and sighs and says, well, that's really too bad. It, is that the, the kind of God that we're preaching here? Is this the, the all-powerful God and all he can do when he shows up on the planet is just throw up his hands and sigh? Luke 9.51. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. What's in Jerusalem? The cross is in Jerusalem. And on the cross... He will defeat Satan and evil forever. Problem number one. And on the cross, he will deal with problem number two. He will pay with his own blood for all of the failures that I've had and all of yours. He will deal decisively with these very two problems. Sigh. And watch him go to the cross and deal the deadly blow. Amen. Father, these things are really hard. And I pray that by the power of the cross and what happened there, you would bring back hearts that long to be with Jesus but are so troubled by the very troubling presence of evil and of failure by Jesus' disciples. And many of those belong to us. We readily confess, Father, that Jesus is a great Savior, much, much greater than all of our sin. And we praise his name.